This morning, we come to our final discussion on work, specifically about the Christian's work. Three weeks may seem like a long time to discuss work, and yet, for the average person, one-third of their day is working, and one-fourth of their week is about work. Many people will spend 18 to 25 years preparing to work, and then another 50 years actually developing a career and being in established jobs. And that doesn't include our work with our family, our work at home, or any work that we may do in the community. How a person works is often how a person is defined. What do you do is often the very first question that is asked and answered at introductions. What a person does for a job is often, often how we identify others. And it's often how we identify ourselves to others. And so in one sense, our jobs become our identities. As believers, though, our identity, our primary identity, is to be with Christ. Which means that if our work describes us, then our work should be established in Christ so that we are described by him and not necessarily by our job alone. This is the basis of what we've established the previous two weeks. Today we now continue and look at the final aspect of the laborer's work. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. For this final portion of, of the worker's part in this series on foundations for a, a thriving society. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, once again. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. <clears throat> Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. <coughs> Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also with us that God may open to us a door for the word (coughs) to declare the mystery of Christ on account which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. You may be seated. (coughs) I've got some, thank you. In a credit card culture, there is a saying about work. 
And that scene is based off the song from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <coughs> this version, though, has been modified. And it now says, I owe, I owe. And so it's off to work I go. For the vast majority of people, this is the best reason they have for going to work. There is a poll that suggests that 43% of Americans are dissatisfied or are satisfied with their job, meaning that 57% are dissatisfied. In some places like Japan, that drops to 17%. And then we come to this text in Colossians. It's written to slaves in the first century. And they, of all people, had little reason to be enthusiastic about their work. But because the Lord has purposed work, he gives work a more significant grandeur. The Lord allocates work as a means to reveal his glory while penetrating people's lives with his goodness. Thus, God's design for work is a means to expose his greatness. And that alone provides us job satisfaction, regardless of what we do. It does not matter the splendor of the duty. It does not matter the glory received from the task. The Lord appropriates work for himself. No matter how mundane the work, the Lord gives all work dignity, as we talked about last week, by making work done for him. Martin Luther understood this when he wrote, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty, not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Because the Lord is exalted in the ambition of work, the ambition of work is to exalt the Lord. This has been the foundational point that we have established these past two weeks. We began two weeks ago by looking at the method of work from Colossians 3.22, noting that work is done for the Lord and it is done obediently and confidently and reverently. And then just last week, we looked upon the meaning of work from verse 23, finding that the value in work we do is because we value the Lord. And so the Lord himself has made work a holy endeavor. And now we come to these verses, verses 24 and 25. And, and what we will see in these verses is the motivation for work, the motivation for work. The model of work is to work for the Lord. The meaning of work is derived from the Lord. And now the motivation for work is also the Lord. The agenda of any business is to determine how to motivate its employees to work well for the benefit of the organization. I had always appreciated my time working at Starbucks because they had made the connection between my contentment and the customer service I provided. And so as a result, they had treated me and other employees very well. That was their means for motivating people to do their work well. But today, what we see is that the motivation for working well is it's rooted not in the earthly, but in the heavenly. From our text, I would tell you that the Christian works most sufficiently when he is most satisfied 
in Christ. And so I want you to see three motivations for work. And I want you to note first that the Christian works for the Lord's reward. The Christian works for the Lord's reward. One of the distinguishing marks of a Christian laborer is that he works not for earthly rewards, not for earthly recompense, or not for earthly reputation, but he finds that motivation in working for Christ's authorization and Christ's adoration and Christ's approval. When we identify ourselves with Christ, it transforms the reason for work so that no longer is the impetus for work derived from merely receiving a paycheck. A job isn't just something that we do to survive in today's society, although certainly it is necessary to function and live. But it's not the driving factor for all things. Instead, those who have identified themselves with Christ seek after the reward of Christ. Notice how verse 24 begins. It states, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. The exhortation of Paul is not to work for the reward from men, but to seek the reward from the Lord, who is Christ. This term for reward is only used here in the New Testament, and yet we know that when it is used in the writings of Paul's day, it meant repayment as though when a debt is owed, or, or even full payment for when services were rendered. And then you combine it with this word receive in the text. And then we get this fuller picture, because that word receive combines two meanings. It joins together in full and what is due, as in payment in full and payment that is due. In places like Romans one twenty seven, this is used to speak of God's judgment, referring to those who are engaged in sexual sin who will one day receive what is owed of them. That's God's wrath. But it also means that not only will re- they receive that because it's owed to them, but it also means they will receive it fully and completely. They will receive their just reward because that is what is owed to them. They will be the full, unhindered, un, full, unhindered, and justified wrath of God. But here, in our context of work, this reward and this repayment is the reception of a full wage, the full wage that is owed to the one who has worked. But this reward is the best that humanity has to offer. The best any man or woman can extend to one another is to just pay them fairly and adequately and justly for a completed job. For the slaves that that Paul is writing to, this is slightly humiliating because they weren't even receiving the full payment of what was rightfully owed to them. So Paul does something very dramatic here. By offering them something far better, he tells them in this previous verse, work for the Lord, not for people. Why? Well, we see it here. Because from Christ, they will receive a reward of inheritance. As slaves, this is 
This is incredibly encouraging. What slave could ever expect to receive an inheritance? It is true that there were times in some cases when a faithful slave may receive the son's portion. But this was a rarity and only an occurrence on special occasions. Here, despite the status of slaves, Paul says they're guaranteed an inheritance. Something that belonged only to a rightful heir. It could not be claimed by someone outside the lineage, and yet here they can find it. How can that be? And Galatians 4, 7 tells us, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Through the Lord's adoptive process, taking in those who were, really weren't part of his family originally, God adopts them. And God qualifies them for this reward of inheritance. And so these slaves who have professed Christ as Lord are now offered a portion of Christ's inheritance. This is the gospel message of the New Testament era. Believe on the Messiah and the message of the Messiah. And then receive his reward in heaven by being grafted into the Lord's family. But belief in the gospel qualifies them for an inheritance. But the reward of an inheritance here in Colossians 3.23, it, it can't be eternal life. That's given at belief, when they believe Christ. Here, that reward of inheritance means that, that there's something that they're, they're earning of some sort. And what could that be? That reward is the commendation of the Lord. Part of what the Lord will say when he says, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. So the gospel qualifies a slave for an inheritance. And the slave's quality work ensures they receive this reward of inheritance. This is where you should start to see something very extraordinary. This is where you should start to see where the gospel impacts everything. The message of Christ isn't merely something we hear, something we believe only to receive eternal life, and that's it. We don't say, oh good, now I'm saved, and then return to life as it was. Belief in the gospel message now influences every aspect of life. And here, it transforms the way we work. This is because belief of the gospel makes Christ our master. And so regardless of whatever earthly master we have, and whatever, earthly, whatever thing an earthly master has to offer, what Christ has to offer is something far more. The best any earthly master can offer, can present to those who work, is something that is temporal in nature. But the Lord offers a reward or inheritance that is eternal. His confirmation is, and his commendation. And so our motivation for work is transferred from the earthly to the heavenly. We don't need to focus on these cheap temporal offerings when the one who works for Christ really awaits a heavenly reward. That extra pay, that promotion, that bonus, they're all inconsequential in comparison to what the Lord has to offer. In fact, this transforms work 
teaching the slaves that they may work well even though they may not receive a wage at all. The best the world has to offer is a worldly reward. And that worldly reward is not even guaranteed. Look at the slaves' treatment, who didn't even receive their earthly due. And so we can toil away our lives working at our earthly jobs, hoping for our earthly reward. Or we can toil away our earthly lives with expectation of a heavenly reward. I think of a friend who visited Switzerland. And because this country is known for its watches, it seems natural that he would go visit a watch museum. As the guide led the friend around showing each aspect, he, he finally came on to a particular section. And the guide swept back and said, and these, these are the watches made by the Christians. Why would he make such a distinction? Because the Christian workers at that time were known for their quality and their craftsmanship. The watches they produced were far more superior than any other work and any other that anybody else worked because they worked for excellence, because they were working for the Lord. Not for man's approval, but for the Lord's approval. I want you to note second... The Christian worker works for the Lord's son. The text reads, you are serving the Lord Christ. It's disputed as to whether or not this is a command, as in saying, you go serve Christ. Or is it simply indicative, just stating a fact, like remember you serve the Lord Christ. I tend to think that it's probably just more indicative. It's more a statement of fact. But the outcome is the same regardless, that those who claim to follow Christ work for Christ. No doubt for slaves, this, this could be a confusing and difficult point. By law, a slave belonged to his owner. And so the work that he did was determined by that owner. <clears throat> but even more, how a slave did his work was determined by his attitude towards the owner. To those who professed Christ, they now identified Christ as their Lord. To alleviate any discrepancy at any moment, when there may be some doubt about how to follow or or who to obey, the Lord makes it clear. By establishing that their service, one service is for the Lord Christ, This is, once again, just a result of the gospel in somebody's life. Because belief in Christ is acceptance of his lordship. Upon acceptance of the gospel, the workers' allegiance, it transfers from the earthly to the heavenly. In this case, it transfers from earthly masters to a heavenly master. And the result is, it it does not matter who one's earthly master is, Christ is lord. And that, as lord, he now becomes the master. But even more important is, is who is Christ? As God, Christ contains all the attributes ascribed to God. This means that he is perfect. He is good. He is merciful. He is gracious. The list goes on and on and on. Most importantly, he is holy. He is everything that an earthly boss cannot be. 
And so when we serve the Lord Christ, we serve the one true God. He is also all-knowing. There's no need to work as people pleasers or for eye service only, as is mentioned in the previous verses. Because the Lord already knows our intentions. Without being physically present, he knows our actions and our attitudes. And this then elevates the standard. Because the one who serves Christ cannot get away with anything. He can't get away with the same things that the person could get away with with his earthly master. Because Christ already knows. But there's something more important here. Well, indeed, this may elevate the standards of our work so that we work with full integrity and honesty. Working for Christ also alleviates our fear of man. Nobody needs to work as people pleasers or eye service because it's not man's approval that is sought. It's the Lord's approval. We just established that and we'll see it again in a second. Sinclair Ferguson would call this the secret of Christian courage and boldness. Because the fear of the Lord, it takes away all other fears. And so here, when we we fear God, all other fears melt away. In this case, our fear of man. How can we not help but look upon the grandeur of Christ and have it not overhaul our expectations? so that the grandeur of anything earthly cannot even compare to him. Compared to the luster of Christ, even the most refined gold looks impure. So why would we not serve him instead of serving the world? We'd be content with nothing less than his majesty. Why does this matter? Because it takes our work from pleasing our bosses our co-workers, or or anyone else for that matter. And it makes it about pleasing Christ so we can experience Christ. By reminding readers to serve Christ, Paul reminds them to fear Christ. And that fear alleviates all other fears. To quote Dick Lucas, to call Christ Lord is to fear to displease him. And that godly fear... sets one free from lesser and other unworthy focuses. And so we work for the Lord's Son. I want you to note, third, that the Christian works for the Lord's approval. The one who works with integrity is often seeking approval. Most often that approval is sought is is usually the boss or the supervisor or the manager. Sometimes, though, it's just the approval of a coworker. At other times, the greatest ambition is actually for one whose, whose work is not actually someone at the job, but someone outside of it. It could be our spouse, it could be family or friends, whoever it may be. It's not uncommon for people to want others to approve of their work, both their quality of work and their work ethic. In other words, they they want to be highly esteemed by others for their work. But the the work we do is not that we may receive the praise of others. It's that we may receive the praise of the Lord. We saw that in the Lord's reward in the last verse. 
Here, that approval is expressed by avoiding the Lord's judgment in verse 25. A verse that reads, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. There will come a day when all face judgment. This is not judgment of salvation. This is not judgment of who will enter heaven. But a judgment of who will be rewarded in heaven. Entrance into heaven has previously been established at belief on earth. But the reward in heaven is judged based on the work done on earth. John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Paul stipulates in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As it is said, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. The slaves here could not presume upon their position in Christ as a reason for God to overlook their misdeeds. The Lord is just. He is a just God and never is his judgment unfair. Never is his judgment unethical. And never is his judgment unjust. In exalting the Lord, the psalmist highlights this attribute of God proclaiming, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness, as we read in our call to worship. A just God is an impartial God. And that's just an extension of his holiness. This morning we read from Leviticus chapter 19. It's a text that in one sense really reiterates the Ten Commandments. Those commandments are designed to lead God's people towards righteousness. They are the Lord's encouragement for people to live holy lives. And then we read in verse 15 of Leviticus 19 that it describes holiness in this way. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. The expectation of holiness in this way is a reasonable expectation because it's how the Lord expresses his holiness towards his people. People are to be just and impartial because the Lord is just and impartial. And so through the hand of Paul, the Lord warns the slaves that the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. This is absurd. The slaves were the ones being mistreated. But, but now they're the ones being lectured on their integrity. First, I would tell you that if the Lord is impartial, we can be assured that that the Lord will now show favoritism or not show favoritism 
to the unfaithful slave or the unjust master. But both of them will receive their just reward. This is confirmed by other letters written even by Paul, where he actually spends more time addressing masters than he does in the next verse in Colossians 4.1. But we also have to remember that slaves sit here in the midst of Colossians. So it is reasonable that Paul would address them directly. Some think this wrongdoing refers to theft, that the slaves were stealing from their masters. Maybe. I don't know. If they were working as eye-pleasers, as it says, as it's stated in previous verses, they certainly weren't being honest in their work. But again, we, we don't know the extent of the wrong. The only thing we can say for certain is that one in their midst, Onesimus, the subject of the letter to Philemon, has run away, which was illegal. But in Scripture, receiving unrighteous treatment never justifies a response of unrighteousness. So we can't argue, yeah, but he was being mistreated. And this is probably where we should step back and, and address the ongoing question that people have. If slavery is unjust and, and contrary to God's character, then why doesn't Paul condemn it directly here? I think there are a number of reasons why Paul likely doesn't respond to slavery directly. First, we see that Paul is dealing with the present circumstances. And the entirety of this letter is in response to the circumstances of the Colossians, the false teachers going on. And so in this case, he's just simply addressing the circumstances of what's going on. We also have to remember that overturning a system or inciting a revolt, if that had even been Paul's purpose, that would have been difficult. First off, often revolts are failed and, and they really leave people in worse circumstances. And so remembering that this was the primary form of economy going on in the day, without a plan to replace it with something else, chaos was probably going to ensue. <clears throat> What's interesting is Paul never really mentions anything political. When he does, he, he refers to the act of submission in Romans 13. And that certainly seems to apply here because he begins this address to the slaves, imploring them to obey their masters, which is a form of godly submission. But I think there's more. Paul has always established the gospel as his priority, not politics. And there's a, there's a reason for this, which... We'll get to in a second. But Paul's very good about going after the heart change. He could have tried to overthrow the system, but ultimately, that's not going to endure because what needs to follow is the heart change or what needs to precede it, really. That's a slow, long-term process, but it is a more effective process. So he's not trying to regulate just by giving them rules. He's, he's trying to institute a new heart attitude. And so I think it's important that readers look at this passage and not forget two important points. First, slavery is never instituted by God. It clearly seems to be a man-made thing. 
early on in the Old Testament, their slavery has already become common. And so we see that actually Scripture regulates slavery, even as early as the Pentateuch. We see it's regulated. And it talks about how, tre- how slaves should be treated. Not only is it not instituted by God, but Paul never actually approves of slavery. The fact that he addresses slaves at all is a big step, and it's indicative of something. Colossians 3.11, what does Paul establish? He says, in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. And now he proves that. He proves, he means what he says by crossing those social barriers and addressing the slaves directly. Something that wasn't always common. And then in our next verse, the text we will get to next week, the Apostle Paul will undermine the entire institution of slavery. Because he will call upon masters to treat them justly and fairly. And so Paul's actually acting contrary to the system that's in place. The Apostle Paul does what he always does, though. He's resolving the issue horizontally, not vertically. As he often does, Paul, Paul does not make the issue something between men and people only. But he always calls upon people to act in light of their relationship with the Lord. This is why we can say that being treated unjustly by others never justifies us responding unjustly to them. Because how we respond to others is never determined by how they treat us. It's determined by how the Lord treats us. And that's what we see here in our verse. The Lord has been just with the slaves. If we wanted to be humorous, we could actually say he's been unjust because he's actually given them so much more than they deserve. He has been gracious by offering them salvation, though they did not deserve it. But he will also deal with them justly in judgment. God will deal with them justly in judgment. And so in in light of his just treatment of them, both in this life and in the next one, Paul is calling upon them to act in the same way. This is how it is for everybody who's trusted the Lord. There is this great maxim to treat other people as you want to be treated. That's wrong. We treat others as the Lord has treated us. And so in our work, when we work for him, We treat others in the workplace as he has treated us. The one who acts justly here avoids God's judgment there. And so we we work for the Lord's approval. And so our text reads, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
We began in verse 22 and saw the model of work. That the one who works, works obediently and confidently and reverently. Notice each of these. That that the one who works, works obediently for Christ. Confidently in Christ. And reverently toward Christ. Notice the direction of work there. All work is directed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the model of work is to work for him. And then from verse 23, we see that work is a sanctifying endeavor. Something used by the Lord to generate holiness in a believer's life. And to that end, it was noted that work is sanctified when we work for the Lord. And we work from the heart. And when we work for the Lord in everything. I began that discussion last week by pointing out that people find more joy and contentment and satisfaction in their job when they connect their work to a purpose. But the purpose of work, the meaning of work, is not self-sufficiency, it is Christ-sufficiency. Notice what we see, that the meaning of work is found in the meaning of Christ. And now today we look at the motivation for work. And we now find the reason for any Christian to labor well for the Lord is we do so for the Lord's reward and the Lord's son and the Lord's approval. Once again, at the very center of work, the motivation for working well is Christ. Earlier, I noted that job satisfaction in the United States was 43%. I'd be curious to know if that trend goes up or down based on belief in Christ. But we can talk about gratification and and fulfillment at work. But by now, there's one thing you should see. True enjoyment at work only comes when one enjoys Christ. True contentment at work comes only when we are content in Christ. And true achievement at work comes only when we have achieved reconciliation with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you as as your servants, Lord. We labor and work and see that it's not for us that we work. Indeed, we get benefits. We get some earthly benefits, hopefully, with a a pay and able to survive, but Father, we, we also get earthly rewards, or heavenly rewards. But more than anything, Lord, our work is a way in which we can relate to you. It's an expression of our love for you, and, and through it we can see your love for us as you use it for our sanctification. And so, Father, may we work well, not to receive the praise of others, but to receive your praise. So we commit this to you and and just ask for your work in our lives, in the area of our work. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.